0: is an associate professor uh, uh, at NYU. Uh, he specializes in 19th century Russian novel and uh, Russian theory, uh, theory. So, sorry, uh, both 19th century and 20th century, theory of the novel, literary theory, and the relationship between philosophy and literature. He is the author of The Narrative, Shape of Truth, or Addiction in Modern European Literature, and co-editor with Boris Moslov of Persistent Forms, Practice, and Historical Poetics. Uh, so, and today Leah is going to be presenting a, uh, a part of his <coughs> forthcoming book, *Sovereign Fiction: The Poetics and Politics of Russian Realism*, uh, which uh, uh, I had the uh, honor and uh, joy of, of reading. It's still manuscript. It still hasn't come out, which I think is going to be the next standard study of uh, Russian realism. Uh, the floor is yours. Thank you uh, Thank you so much Kirill, uh, for your uh, as always over oh. ge- generous introduction and uh, thank you uh, Krika for, for the for making the whole thing uh, uh, so smooth for me and Jennifer Tischler and Courtney Johnson um, uh, yes so I will I will start. Uh, to talk about this, um, this book project, uh, but uh, kind of excerpt from this book project. And um, am I audible? Yes. Uh, yeah. yeah. And um, um, I, I would very much appreciate your, your critical <laughs> observations or questions uh, afterwards, because the book, uh, contrary to what Kirill has said, well, it's close. He, he was almost not lying. <laughs> that, uh, that it, it, it is not yet uh, it is still a kind of work in progress and so uh, I, would, I would gladly uh, welcome, welcome feedback to, to be able to integrate it um, there, there was uh, a musicologist friend of mine whose advisor told him that there are three types of talk uh, talks, uh, academic talks that are ever given uh, one type of <laughs> academic talk uh, can be entitled "Composer X, What a Guy." <laughs> another title, another type of academic talk, can be entitled "Here's Some Stuff." <laughs> and a third type of academic work can be entitled "This Is Why You're All Wrong." <laughs> so, I will try to do a little bit of all three of these. <laughs> not, not meaning it personally towards you, but, but. Um, But yeah, we'll see. We'll see what happens. So um, it is, of course, impossible and and would be pointless to try to date the origin of Russian realism with any meaningful precision. One episode stands out, however, as an emblematic and conceptual origin, if not a literal and chronological one. The episode, a scandalous uh, event in its own right, involved the leading literary critic of his generation, Viserion Belinsky, ostensibly misinterpreting a sentence of German philosophy. Mm -hmm. Belinsky paid a heavy price for what he would soon come to regard as a passing derangement, (coughs) prompt remorse and lasting regret, patronizing comments by his closest friends, disdain for his lack of philosophical sophistication, continuing to this day. The sentence Belinsky ostensibly misunderstood, was a notorious speculative trap from the preface of Georg Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel, ele- Elements uh, of the Philosophy of Right, What is Rational is Actual, and What is Actual is Rational. <clears throat> In uh, the course of approximately a year and a half between 1839 and 1840, Belinsky published a number of articles that heavily relied on Hegelian terminology and called for primirienie z действительностью, reconciliation with actuality. The period marked a sudden ultra-conservative turn in his writing, reversing the central political and aesthetic orientations that had characterized his work until then. Contemporaries and later scholars have argued that Belinsky's lack of philosophical erudition, let alone mastery of, of German have led him to misunderstand what Hegel in fact meant by um, by actuality, or in the German original *Wirklichkeit*. According to this account, Belinsky takes the word to mean simply all that is the case, brute objectivity, what is given to perception. Um, this makes his call to reconciliation sound passive, invoking the attitude of submissiveness to the reigning order of things. Meanwhile, in its original context, the term wirklichkeit, so went the argument, the term wirklichkeit was meant to invoke social life as a product of conscious human activity, human rationality actualizing itself in the world. For Hegel, a modern social order can be fully actual only if its members, free and rational agents, can recognize it as a product of their own collective activity. The proper stance in relation to such actuality is neither resignation before a superior force, nor still less identification with its overwhelming sublimity. Rather, at stake is a dignified sense of mastery, a pride in the achievement of a world in which individual freedom and social cohesion converge. Belinsky's действительность has a different shape. With characteristic vehemence, he launches, in his first articles that he wrote um, um, after uh, the reconciliation conversion, launches into an overwrought celebration of Russian autocracy and, quote, the really sublime spirit of the Russian czar. In his 1839 review of Vasily Zhukovsky's poem, The Borodino Anniversary, alongside General Skableyev's letters from Borodino, From an art- uh, Armless to um, to the Legless Invalid, he sidesteps, Belinsky sidesteps the standard liberal nationalist interpretation of the Russian victory over Napoleon as an accomplishment of the entire people and dwells instead on the leading role of the monarch. So here I have it. I have this in Russian, but um, I will, I will uh, summarize in English. For us, Russian, he writes, there are no national narodnych events which don't spring forth from the living well of supreme power. Without the presence of the czar, quote, who with calm, regal sublimity greets the pe- people's rapturous acclamations, on whose face they read thunder and grace and royal valor, even military triumph would amount to nothing but a, quote, meaningless gathering of an idle crowd. So the, the gr- a group of people on their own do not constitute a polity. Resorting to Hegelian terminology, Belinsky concludes that in Russia, only absolute obedience to the will of the sovereign makes possible, quote, free and conscious participation in, quote, rational Actuality. This is the Hegelian giveaway, right? Um, um, or succinctly, in the czar consists our freedom. The last model must have been especially offensive to the liberal members of Belinsky's circle of friends. And to many of them, to whom the details of Hegel's philosophy were both familiar and precious, Belinsky's statement may have sounded less obviously wrong then, what is worse, parodic, disturbingly like, and grotesquely unlike the original. After all, the identification of freedom with the modern state is Hegel's own. So is the notion that the modern state, precisely insofar as it recognizes the centrality of the individual, must delegate ultimate, ultimate sovereignty to a single person, the monarch. This is all Hegel. Thus, genuine freedom, can only be achieved in a certain kind of monarchy. Belinsky's departure from Hegel, therefore, is a subtle one, a shift in emphasis with regard to precisely the kind of monarchy, the precise modality <coughs> of statehood with which Belinsky asks his readers to rec- reconcile. In order to understand more precisely the nature of Belinsky's take on Hegel's Wirklichkeit, Belinsky the Belinskyan heresy, In order, uh, we we need to look uh, a little bit more closely at Hegel's philosophy of the state uh, as the condition for the realization of human freedom. Only such a state, according to Hegel, is genuinely actual. This is what I propose to do now in the process of outlining an approach to the study of sociotopes, imaginaries of sociality, of social belonging and separateness that are presupposed in literary, philosophical, and other discourses and can thus serve as grounds for dialogue among them. So then I went into a kind of um, diagrammatic frenzy, uh, in yes. which I, with, to which I will expose you uh, uh, with apologies, to which I will expose you now in order to try to make some sense of what Hegel's um, uh, vision of the state is. In Hegel's account, the modern state consists of three distinct but interlinked interlinked types of sociality. The family, you can see here at the bottom, civil society and political authority. And this is a bit confusing because he refers to the state both in the sense of the political authority of the state or the government and the state as an entire thing that contains families and civil society and political authority as well. So uh, in order to avoid this confusion, I will try to emphasize, I will, I will, I will um, try to speak of political authority um, mm, uh, as such. Relations within the family are based on, the, uh, according to Hegel, are based on the bond of immediate feeling in which unity among the members supersedes their separateness. Within the family, one is a husband, a mother, a daughter, before one is an individual. Hegel calls this kind of trans-individual formations Substantive. So here, substantive. Um, as you can see from the colors of the diagram, political authority or the state in the narrow sense of the word is also substantive. Uh, we, can, we can know this at moments of emergency or what is referred to in political theory as states of exception, a siege, a war, a plague, a general collapse of social institutions, a situation in other words, where the, so, the whole social order is in danger, at moments like these, individual rights can be temporarily suspended for the sake of the preservation of the polity, and it is of course the polity that constitutes the conditions for the possibility of individual rights to begin with, right? And therefore, the individual rights themselves cannot fundamentally be um, be the be all, all and end all of the polity, right? So. Um, um, yeah, so, so just keep this in mind, I will come back to it um, uh, But in the meantime, I would like to men- to, to um, show another diagram in which Hegel speaks of sovereignty, specifically of state sovereignty specifically. He speaks of two kinds of sovereignty, external and internal. External sovereignty, it's clear what that means, right? It's, a, it's the, the ability to sustain a particular polity as against other polities that might attack it. Or or um, or, uh, or threaten it in some other way, and so when the political state enters into a relationship to other state, insofar so far as it relates, in, uh, enters into relationships into other state, what ends up happening is that the political state um, cancels out the principles of the family and the principles of civil society, and as it were, pulls everything into, into itself. Right? So uh, individuals can lose property for the sake of the state. Uh, the families must give away their sons, daughters, whatever else, uh, for the war effort, and so on. <clears throat> In Hegel's account, the modern state consists, oh, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm now being uh, a little bit repetitive here. <laughs> um, um, <clears throat> OK, but this is fairly well-known territory, right? This is, in other words, not anything that Hegel is, is here inventing when it comes to political theory or political philosophy. The association of the family and the state is very old, old standing, right? Uh, and, uh, and, um, and the sense in which uh, the two uh, form particularly tight kinds of bonds, uh, of course, by analogy with each other, by model with each other. Uh, is is nothing surprising here? Hegel's truly kind of surprising, revolutionary, and still consequential uh, conceptual innovation pertains to this. this civil society, the middle term. <clears throat> so um, he, this is what Hegel says about civil society. Uh, oh, oops. Okay. Here it is. In civil society, and this is kind of tangled language, each individual is his own end, and all else means nothing to him. Here we begin with individuals, not with unities. Uh, But he cannot accomplish the full extent of his ends without reference to others. These others are therefore means to the end of a particular individual. But through its reference to others, the particular end... um, a particular end of a particular individual, takes on the form of universality and gains satisfaction by simultaneously satisfying the welfare of others. If this sounds very much like the discourse of contemporary, more or less contemporary political economy, uh, it should, right? This is, in fact, where Hegel takes this, and he does not hide it. Since particularity is tied to the condition of universality, the whole of civil society is the sphere of mediation in which all individual characteristics all aptitudes, all accidents of birth and fortune are liberated where the waves of all passions surge forth governed only by the reason which shines through them. This sounds a little bit obviously a little abstract and and poetic but Hegel's actual working out of the problem of civil society, of how it works, of how people actually get from uh, uh, individuality and separateness into groups is painstaking and detail, and occupies a big chunk of, of, of the book. Uh, in brief, three principles of quasi-spontaneous unification or aggregation organize the domain of civil society. These principles operate simultaneously and interdependently, but Hegel examines them part by part. At the lowest, right, so... So uh, yeah, so this is a kind of overview of all the three principles. The principle of what you call system of needs, actualized rights, and common interest. And uh, the relationship between all of these is complicated In so far as we can think of the movement from the system of needs to actualized right to common interest as a movement of development, right? Development of consciousness of dependence on other people. Initially you begin by assuming that you're just on your own Whatever you want goes. Right, and then gradually you kind of ascend and on the other hand uh, the bottom parts are conditioned by the presence of, of the, the, the higher parts, right, this kind of circularity is, is very typical of the, way, of the way he thinks so at the lowest level, the most fundamental uh, level uh, here we have uh, individuals organized by what Egel calls system of needs okay, here it gets really uh, weird Right. so I was trying to sketch out what the system of needs looks like. Uh, it is a network of relationships into which individuals are compelled to enter because their desires cannot be satisfied without the participation of others. Right. So this is paradigmatically the market, more broadly, economic domain of labor and consumption, within which individual inca- individuals encounter each other as means to their own ends. Despite the apparent, so right, everybody's in the grips of what they want, Right, they're looking for stuff, but in order to get the stuff they want, they need to exchange with others, so they need to enter into relationships. I can't get what I want without other people. This is a kind of first step, as it were, right? Uh, But not only this, and I'll just uh, go over it on my own, without the text, not only this, but uh, according to Hegel, uh, desire in in civil society, desire, need, becomes a socialized, right? And so far as we start imitating each other, we, we learn what to want and how to need from each other within that kind of domain, right? So two types of kind of relationship, um, something that we don't, we're often not aware of, right? Like the, the whole, you know, why should I pay taxes thing, right, <laughs> because you need roads, right, in <laughs> order to conduct your, 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 your trade. Right, so this is part of Hegel's point, right? Is that you think this is what's happening, but actually behind your back this other thing is happening. Okay, so um, so the next stage, we get to um, the principle. Let me just see if I. Um, right, these are all actually I put men and women or whatever, whatever these are, right? The little <laughs> icons. But uh, for Hegel, it's important to keep in mind that for Hegel, um, the, the members of civil society are male. And, and we could talk about what that means and his whole kind of gender uh, politics, which is actually more interesting than it appears uh, in a lot of ways and, and mirrors uh, certain contemporary ideas about, more or less contemporary ideas uh, within feminism. So the um, system of needs. The next stage. Um, we have that same system of needs but at this point um, individuals are conceived as capable of abstracting from their desires and self-interest in favor of obedience to the law which they come to respect as the precondition for the life of a collective made up of discrete individuals the element of abstraction consists in being able to in being able to recognize a universal dimension of personhood beyond the particular characteristics and functions of the individual. The system of needs as such, devoid of the guarantee of justice and right, would in principle permit all sorts of infractions against persons and property, which is kind of paradoxical, right? So within, within if, if, we, if we forget about the law that guarantees people's person and property, right, the market itself can no longer function, right? So this is how... The higher stage presupposes the lower stage, right? And I have here this this little skeleton-like figure, because not because the person is dead, although in the way it is dead, right? Uh, but in the sense that it's abstract. It's an abstract person. It's not an actual person, right? It's it is uh, the the law-abiding uh, uh, aspect of all of us. The aspect of all of us who are capable of abstracting from what we need in order to uh, to, to follow, to follow duty. Okay. Um, yes. And then the third, and in some sense the highest moment, right? And this is the sketch of the entire thing, right? This all is still here. Sorry, this is still here. This is still there. And then we get to the third uh, stage. The third and, uh, in some sense, the highest moment of aggregation within civil society is the principle of coincidence between interests we hold in private and interests we hold in common. So the coincidence is achieved, uh, or at least approximated, through what Hegel calls the police and the corporation. Sound a little ominous to us, right? <laughs> but he means the police, polizei, in a specific 17th, 18th century sense, of the term. The police in Hegel's contemporary use refers to a range of governmental agencies regulating production, distribution, provision of utilities, prevention of fraud, inspection of goods, public health, relief of poverty, and so on. Right. So something that uh, attempts to makes to, to keep the entire the, the sort of, um, how to put it, the, the exigencies or no, the, the excesses of the market uh, under control, right? So if I want to sell you something, I can make something that will poison you, but you know, there's an agency that's that's watching watching out for that. Um, as far as corporations, also a specific use, although maybe a little bit closer to ours, uh, what he means by corporations are voluntary associations based on common occupational or other social interests trade guilds, religious associations, educational societies, and so on. So a little bit closer, maybe, to what we mean in this modern sense of the word civil society, right? Uh, Yeah, the logic underlying both of these institutions involves the recognition of interests shared in common. Uh, Here, the concrete interests of the system of needs and the abstract universality of law in Hegel as a typical move come together into a synthesis, a kind of concrete, universal, real and distinct individuals coming together into groups, finally. So, right, so this is, yeah, so... Um, we can see from this that um, the sections on civil society are absolutely central to Hegel's conception of wirklichkeit or действительность. It is specifically on this terrain that a kind of dynamic identity is achieved between what Hegel calls essence and existence, the inner or the individual disposition on the one hand and the external social order. We might say, in fact, that Hegel's three scenarios of civil society aggregation are also his scenarios of narrative realism. Hegel has some not so interesting, well, Kirill might disagree, but in my opinion, not so interesting things to say about something like the novel and his aesthetics. Uh, but, um, but I think philosophy of right can, can productively be read as a theory of realism um, itself. Um, right. So scenarios of narrative realism. And I mean realism here in the most common sense, but also quite orthodox literary historical terms. These are stories of an individual's induction into the world in which the individual's imaginings and wantings cannot be realized as such, not directly and fully, because the individual is not alone, but is entangled in a set of complex relations with others. So much so, in fact, that those innermost imaginings and wantings are not entirely individual's own, but are products of the entanglements themselves, so I would like to do do something a little bit schematic and try to give some literary examples um, from 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 the the tradition of the Western novel about how this this can uh, can play out. And um, to begin, and all three very well known texts. So hopefully they will they will ring a bell, and you will be able to tell me if I'm. Um, full of nonsense mm-hmm. so, uh, so to begin with uh, Balzac's uh, Per Goriot the novel tells uh, the story from 1835 the novel tells the story of a young man's introduction into restoration um, into restoration period Paris as the sort of place where daughters financially exploit their father and abandon him on his deathbed when he has nothing else to give, nothing left to give we are dealing in other words with the demise of substantive sociality of traditional familiar and familial and political order and the merciless ascent of the cold-blooded system of needs. The substantive metaphor binding together the figures of the father and the state is made explicit when old Goriot in deathbed delirium calls upon the institutions of the state to bring his daughters to him even against their will. Send for the police and make them come to me. Justice is on my side, screams Guryo. The whole world is on my side. I have natural rights and the law with me. I protest. The country will, the country will go to ruin if a father's rights are trampled underfoot. The whole world turns on fatherly love. Fatherly love is the foundation of society. It will crumple into ruin when children do not love their fathers. Compel them to come call out the guard the military anything and everything but make them come the substantive alliance which is the alliance of fatherhood and statehood here is invoked as what has been lost the world has been delivered over to naked self-interest but this condition turns out in balzac turns out to be extremely fruitful when it comes to novelistic narrative as for hegel so for balzac the system of needs is a genuine social system And as Balzac's larger output shows, the system is capable of anchoring countless narrative scenarios. In Pergoriot, Goriot, the narrative is one of successful socialization. In order to successfully inhabit this system, the hero must learn three fundamental lessons. First, he must learn how to desire like a Parisian by imitating the desires of others. If in the beginning the young man in Paris is dazzled by the covered carriages trotting down Avenue Champs-Élysées. <coughs> On a fine day, he learns soon enough to want one of his own. Second, he must learn, and again, I keep with the he, he must learn that diverse regions of social life with their apparent distinctions of status and estate and other traditional categories are actually connected into a unified whole by the circulation of money connected, in other words, into an all-embracing system of exchange from which nothing, not even filial affection or romantic passion, is exempt. Finally, he must learn that when it comes to this system of socially produced and infinitely exchangeable needs, there are no universals or absolutes. As the hero's mentor and great criminal Vautrin puts it, there are no principles, just things that happen. There are no laws either, just circumstances. From the point of view limited strictly to the system of exchange among various particularly, uh, particular socially produced needs, the universality of the law is indeed a difficult and an unnecessary concept to grasp. On the other hand, the universality of the law is precisely the core sociotope organizing the autobiographical account of the education of Jane Eyre. The stakes of Jane's maturation are hinted at from the start during the sequence of her first rebellion against mistreatment by members of her adoptive family. Thus mistreated and clearly in possession of some instinctive sense of her own dignity as a human being, Jane flies into a violent rage. She is restrained and punished. And now... Once she is restrained and punished at this moment, we hear her adult voice. And she says, I could not answer the ceaseless inward question why I thus suffered. Now, at the distance of I will not say how many years, I see it clearly. The explanation is less important for our purposes than the appearance of a gap between the passionate and the reflective capacities of the subject. One is entirely caught up in her feelings, the other rises above the limited perspective of the child and sees, however approximately, into the minds of others. This dualism, this split subjectivity is at stake throughout the novel, and Jane's increasing capacity to make the reflecting, abstracting, dutiful self dominant is what ultimately accounts for her social enfranchisement. This capacity is tested throughout by mo- uh, but most pain- throughout, but most painfully at the moment when she finds herself in danger of becoming Mr. Rochester's mistress. <clears throat> Faced with the double danger arising from her own passion and from Rochester's violent insistence on possessing her, and her own passion and Rochester's physical violence are, are confused or compli- in a complicated entangled in this way. Uh, she calls upon, Jane calls upon Resist the temptation and the fear alike by privileging the sublime voice of what she calls intolerable duty. Preparing to flee the Rochester estate to lose not only her dearly beloved and the means to support herself, essentially endeavoring, uh, it, sorry, essentially endangering her very survival, she reasons with herself thus: "I care for myself. The more solitary." more friendless, more unsustained I am, the more I will respect myself. I will keep the law given by God, sanctioned by man. Laws and principles are not for the times when there is no temptation. They are for such moments as this, when body and soul rise in mutiny against their rigor. Stringent they are, inviolent, inviolate they shall be. So it's curious, right? Because uh, uh, Rastignac also cares for himself, right? And the, and the, and the characters of Balzac. But the self is a different self, right? Uh, and this is what's, what's curious, right? She cares for herself insofar as she's able, willing to destroy herself for the sake of duty, right? So that self is, high, is, is closely identified with the, with, the, with the law rather than with whatever else is left of her particularity. <clears throat> okay, and final example. Um, Yeah, from from Wilhelm Meister. Um, Goethe's Wilhelm Meister's Years of Apprenticeship presents us with yet another model of education, unfolding against the horizon of yet another sociotope. Here, the adventures of young Wilhelm, with a traveling theater troupe filled with detours, errors, and broken promises, turn out to have contributed to benevolent overall pattern, which is in the end revealed to the protagonist himself. As it happens, the benevolent pattern is precipitated by members of a mysterious sprawling corporation or society of the tower, bringing together the landowning estate, the clergy, the military, and the bourgeoisie, men and women alike. And there's an <coughs> emphasis of, of this kind of interclass, intergender uh, constitution of the society of the tower. A part of uh, his initiation into the mysteries of uh, his corporate uh, entity, Wilhelm is presented with a theatrical overview of some of the major incidents of his life. How strange, he exclaims to himself. Can there be be some pattern in chance events? Indeed, this is the point. The pattern forms apparently of its own, connects individuals to each other, and thus teaches them that they belong together, that they can and must cooperate in order to improve their own condition, as well as the condition of the world as a whole. And here I have two quotes. this is uh, Wilhelm complaining to one of the members of the of the of the of the Society of the Tower about the the way that the people in the theater in the traveling troupe behave towards mm-hmm. each other, right? And it's just madness, right? It's like everybody is for themselves; nobody's willing to cooperate, right? Oh, the only thing they have is self-interest and self self-love would suffice to bring them even though that self-interest and self-love should bring them together, it does not. <coughs> right? And uh, uh, the way that the a person within the society of um, the tower reasons, uh, he is thinking about making reforms to benefit his uh, serfs. Right? And he says, it is right that man, when he first enters upon life, should think highly of himself. Should deter- No, this is a different quote. Apologies, oh, Sorry about that. But um I just in order to save time a little bit, I I want to see uh-huh. Aha. <laughs> okay. So um we can talk more about Wilhelm Meister if 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 we need to. The um mm, I will just skip over to once again to return to Belinsky. Um, and see how things work with him, right? So uh, we can see uh, close, clearly right uh, the extent to which bilinski in these essays is, is being a patriarchalist right духовное родство потому и свято что выходит из плотского. точно так же потому же самому государству есть разумное потому священное явление что его начало скрывается в естественно семейственном родстве людей перешедшем потом в родство племенное и наконец народное so uh, essentially uh, for Belinsky, the, the domain of the state and, and the family uh, are united, brought together in a kind of metaphor, uh, and represent uh, contemporary actuality. Right? Uh, what is left out is the middle term. And, um, uh, and here's a passage where Belinsky actually is trying to come to terms with this. Right, because he's he's talking to people around him. Right, he he understands. He actually understands much Hegel much better than he's given credit uh, for. Uh, and so he says, okay, uh, let's see. How do we make sense of the fact that individuals actually encounter each it, itself as independent actors with their own desires and so on? He says, as an individual, everyone strives for his potential personal satisfaction. But as soon as he takes a step towards that satisfaction, he encounters an obstacle outside himself where he sees many beings like him just as he is striving for their personal satisfaction. Perfectly Hegelian, right? So one might think, okay, how is it going to start aggregating? Well, it's not. (laughs) The subject conscious of his uh, peculiarity, his self-purpose, and following his instinctive desire for personal satisfaction feel himself at each step and in each action, as if bound by some external relations. He says to himself, I am my own purpose and want to live for myself. But the outer world tells him, you are not made for yourself. You belong to me. Every joy and pleasure you have can only come with my permission. Mm -hmm. With horror and hatred, the young man listens to this terrible voice of some phantom whom he does not see, but whose mighty embrace has enveloped him on all sides and does not allow him any free movement. Right? So the idea of moving from an <coughs> individual through this kind of third step, mediating, growing, developing into um, consciousness of uh, uh, community is actually here reduced into a kind of binary opposition, where there's on the one individual, and on the other hand, this external power that that he is that he's confronting. And um, it's curious, Belinsky in these in these articles talks a lot about what the poetry of actuality would be, right? one of our earliest uh, formulations of, of a kind of realist uh, aesthetics. And when he does this, he keeps turning to he, he gives us examples, particular kind of examples of what what it looks like for uh, to be actualized through narrative or to be aesthetically represented. And here's one example uh, which he gives to us. He gives a whole number of them, but here's one of them. Uh, you recognize, of course, the painting and the, the scene, right? We have um, uh, Peter, uh, right, about to imprison his uh, son and presumably torture and kill him. And Belinsky. Uh, has this to say the scales of justice are ready on one side the the natural love of the parent on the other the fate of the people the people have triumphed an awesome and solemn minute the sun should have stopped its eternal primordial movement nature should have held its breath the pulse of cosmic life should have been interrupted in expectation of the fearful decision the objective world has defeated the subjective world the universal has defeated the particular. Why is such <coughs> victory so great? Because the rights of the subjective man are infinitely powerful in his soul and can be defeated only through self-sacrifice for the benefit of the universal. So right, the idea is that there's a conflict in, in Peter which <laughs> which is unclear how, how accurate this is to to, to the fact of the matter, right, but he really loves his son just as a father, right, as a you know within the family and so on but he also but he realizes that right he needs to he needs to kill his son and so he um, so this is the poetry of actuality this scene this this kind of this representation this moment this confrontation um, stark um, sacrificial and um, pertains to or tends towards uh, political, Tragedy, rather than uh, rather than novelistic, novelistic narrative. Um, so we have two. This is already, I, I guess, familiar material, right? We have two two notions of disfiguredness here that that operate, and this is the basis. My understanding of the basis of, this, of the misunderstanding of disfiguredness, but uh, also uh, I want to say something about the fact that Belinsky in this case isn't isn't misunderstanding just kind of contingently, as Hegel would put it. He is misunderstanding symptomatically. In other words, he's misunderstanding in a way that sheds light on the way in which Russian realism will then unfold, which is to say that it um, it will pertain, it will deal with things that look familiar to us from other types of Western European fiction, but will deform them. As the formalists would put it, warp them in particular directions, <laughs> and I would like to just say a, a couple of words about the way this happens in Abkhazian um, history, right? Which is a, 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 a story that is like, in some ways, like these others. So this is one of my favorite quotes, right? Uh, you, you probably well-known quote from from Uncle Alduif, right? Who teaches his uh, his nephew how to manage women, <laughs> right? Does speak Russian? Not everybody. Not everybody, okay. So um, yeah, you have to mold a woman uh, out of the girl according to a well-designed plan, a method, if you like, of your own, so that she understands and plays the role she has been assigned you must confine her within an invisible circle you must contrive to make to take possession not only of her heart but her mind and her will and subordinate her tastes and habits to your own so that she sees everything through your eyes and thinks with your mind accord her freedom of action within her sphere as long as you monitor vigilantly for every movement every sigh and every action so that each and every moment uh, momentary mood change outburst the first sign of any feeling always meets with the apparent equanimity, but ever watchful eye of the husband. So one of the most telling, just good one, right? Uh, so five minutes. Yeah. So one of the most telling and distinctive uh, characteristics of uh, Gensharov's bildungsroman is the absolute centrality of uh, to it of the relationship between the protagonist and the narrator and the mentor, sorry, the protagonist and the mentor. At various points in the European novels I have mentioned, we have a Jean or Jane come under the influence of more experienced characters and eventually face the need to synthesize their lessons or to choose among them. The dispersed, the dispersed structure of mentorship correlates with an emphasis on mobilizing and guiding individual desire as a basic block of social aggregation the same as uh, the situation is in some sense simplified here we have a dy- dyadic relationship between the protagonist and the mentor superimposed on a highly episodic punctual narrative the mentor, the oldest man in the family, a high ranking government official and the namesake of Peter the Great speaks not for this or that element of society but for all of it at once, for the entire enlightened state ushered modern age which he also calls sacred because rational it's a fun- fantastic kind of uh, echo of Bilinski right uh, uh, why is why is why is this modern age sacred and, uh, sorry uh, yeah why is it uh, sacred uh, his wife asks so sacred and it's sacred because it's rational one of the most telling and distinctive characteristic oh, again okay um, Yeah, such a pedagogical frame foregrounds the substantive imaginaries of the family and the state at the expense of spontaneous social formations. The wider social world into which the hero could find other mentors is reduced to a series of episodic involvements for use as object lessons in extended discussions between the young man and his all-knowing uncles. Alexander's favorite... So we have something like a picaresque novel, right? One episode, another episode, another episode, another episode... And it's then punctuated by so, um, you know, the women he encounters, the friends, you know, disappointments, and awe in in creat- creative endeavors, and so on and so forth. All of them just kind of disappear once the lesson has been learned, right? So then, then, then the uncle, uncle Adouev can't remember the names of his of his beloveds, right? So he keeps playing with the name. The names don't matter really. They just stand in for a love interest. Um, um, yeah instead of representing the hero's integration into con- contemporary social life the novel shows us repeated infantilizing regression back to the family attending to his uncle's instructions accepting the consolations of the aunt Alexander's development unfolds not so much in society proper but under the auspices of the three term metaphor of the state sovereign, patriarch, teacher the elder Adouev's pedagogical techniques are noteworthy. For example, on one occasion, he reads Alexandra's letter to a childhood friend, condemns it as nonsense, and dictates an alternative letter instead. He burns his nephew's letter to his beloved. Under false pretenses, confiscates Alexandra's poems for use around the house as insulation. Throws his sentimental keepsakes out the window. The novel presents these actions in a comic key, compelling us to join the uncle in mocking and maltreating the helpless young man, of course, for his own good. There is something here of how we might be tempted to sympathize with the jolly executioner Peter, Peter I, mocking and abusing his hopelessly backward subjects. But what is particularly remarkable about this novel is how it ends. The epilogue is said several years after the main action of the novel. Here we meet Alexander who has been uh, who has thoroughly capitulated to his uncle's precepts. His education is complete and he comes to resemble the uncle in word and deed. Again this idea that somehow the student will be exactly identical with the mentor is um, a strange idea. Instead of joining the mentor in a certain endeavor together with the mentor right? Um, um It turns out that... uh, Sorry, yet all of this is given in the light of another development, which changes, in fact, reverses the meaning of the outcome. It turns out that Pyotr's wife, Lizaveta Alexandrovna, is suffering from some ill-defined but dangerous psychosomatic affliction, an apathy so powerful it threatens to become deadly. A doctor helps Aduliv recognize, the uncle uh, uh, Aduliv recognized, that... um, That, what? That, uh, yeah, the technology of rational control with which he approached his wife, as much as his nephew, has backfired. It appears that the only remedy for her condition can be found in the very principles passion, impulse, imagination, idealism, which (coughs) the uncle has successfully managed to crush in the young man. Later in the novel, defeated but not yet reconciled. Alexander meets a young woman he inwardly calls Antigone. The girl is a naive, earnest person who reminds Alexander of his own younger self. This invocation of the tragic heroine points to a homology between the novel and the play. At stake in both are the paradoxical scenarios of sovereign power, the cost of control, the anxieties of legitimacy, the overreach of enlightenment, and the triumph of the elements over those who triumph too decisively over them? I'm le- less interested in what the novel, let alone the novelist, ultimately stands. Where where the novelist stands? If one had to choose between the uncle and the nephew, one would have to. One may have to pick the older, soberer, funnier man. Um, and this is, in fact, the way that the novel was read by most people, including Bilinski. Uh, this. Um, What interests me is a particular preoccupation, peculiar preoccupation, a different realism. Not totally different, of course, but different enough to afford us another angle on the shared institutional and experiential ensemble of European modernity. In foregrounding the dynamics of the state, and specifically the sovereign uh, state, the corpus of Russian realist narratives surely responds to the social conditions under which it is produced. And we can talk about that more if we want to. But it, does not, um, but, but it does so not by tracing a totally unique path, a kind of Sonderweg of narrative realism. Instead, it may be said to highlight to highlight elements of shared structures and experiences that tend to be left in the shadow by other realist traditions. Specifically, this particular realist hermeneutic makes explicit the prominent role of the state within the modern social formation, a role that is often disavowed, covered up by visions of ostensibly spontaneous social processes conceived as an aggregate of individual actions done. Put, un- put another way, such texts shed light on the fact that social arrangements, regarded as both infinitely complex and unpremeditated, are in fact shaped from position positions of political power and bulwark by violence. Together with this critique, however, this type of realism generates its own promise and its own obfuscation. As a promise, it offers a robust vision of the polity as a potential locus of the common good, universal belonging, and harmonious coexistence. As obfuscation, it enacts and thus threatens to reproduce a fixation on scenarios of charismatic force, Cleansing violence and melancholy frailty. Okay, sorry to run over.